Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we're going to talk to two people who co-wrote a book called The Castleton Massacre. That may sound a little scary, but we'll get into that in a little more detail. So I'm going to welcome the uh, two co-authors, Sharon Cook and Maggie Carson. So welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much. Okay. So let's first of all get into your academic background. Sharon, where did you go to school? Oh, I, um, I went to school, my high school education was in Alberta. My undergraduate was at the University of Alberta and then at Carleton University. My master's was at Carleton University and my PhD was there. My bachelor of education is from Queen's University. Mm-hmm. You spent a lot of time in school. I have, I have, yeah. <laughs> you didn't want to work, obviously. <laughs> Well, I worked at the same time, Peter. Okay. So there you are. (laughs) We'll get into that. Maggie, tell us about your education. Yes, I attended the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary, received my bachelor's and my teaching certificate in Alberta. Uh, I went on to teach all grade levels plus college level. Um, Hold on, hold on. Yes. Do you want to get into your work? Ah, okay. <laughs> yes. Okay, so Sharon, let's go back to you in terms of your work experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like like Margaret, I um, was a teacher for 16 years. I taught at the secondary school level. Um, I de- developed curriculum for students uh, from the middle school up to the end of high school and was a consultant um, <clears throat> with my local board of education. Um, uh, in that capacity. I went on from there to um, join the University of Ottawa and I taught in the uh, Bachelor of Education program, the, the Master's and PhD uh, programs at the University of Ottawa. I taught in Women's Studies as a cross-appointment and I taught in the Department of History uh, as a cross-appointment. My, my uh, doctorate is in history, so it's kind of my natural home. But you also spend a little time writing. <laughs> yes. Well, it's one of the things that um, kind of goes with the territory of being an academic. You know, you, you, uh, you don't teach nearly as much as an elementary, middle, or high school teacher. Um, but you are called upon to research and to write. So yes, I've, um, I'm the author um, or editor of 11, of 11 books um, uh, chapters and articles that it, it, as I say, it goes with the territory. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, when I retired in 2012, I was full professor, um, at the university of Ottawa and also distinguished university professor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Maggie, where did you work? Yes, I, my specialized in, uh, high school teaching and I specialized in upgrading for adults at one point. I moved on from there to teach at the college level and develop 
programs such as safety and workplace reading, Aboriginal employment partnership programs, workplace writing fundamentals, and also English for skilled immigrants. Um, with this, I liaised with industry through the college for a number of years, developing programs tailor-made for uh, the employees of different companies. And that was my last number of years of, of um, I would say, work and employment. I also followed my husband around the world. Uh, we had uh, three children, and while I was uh, following him around out of the country, we lived in New Zealand for three years, and during that time, I concentrated on raising my children. I didn't have a work permit at that point, but returned to work when we returned to Canada. Yes. So, Maggie, what was the college name? Keanu College. Keanu College in Alberta. I taught at, at uh, two of them, one in Edmonton and one in Fort McMurray. Yes. Okay, excellent. Okay, so now we get around to the book. And mm -hmm. the book for the listeners, it's called The Castleton Massacre, Survivor Stories of the Killens Femicide. So who came up with the name for the book? Hmm, that, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, I could answer part of it, and Sharon, you could, you could join me. Uh, the first part, the Castleton Massacre, was uh, a collaboration. Sharon and I came up with the first part. We had a different name attached to that, but this particular name was, I think, pushed by the publisher, right, Sharon, if, if I'm not correct. But, yeah. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, back and forth with a few options. That's right. The um, uh, No, that, that's absolutely right. Um, I think the publisher wanted to emphasize the fact that this um, account of um, a massacre uh, is special in several ways. In one way, um, because uh, two um children survived <clears throat> this massacre and they their oral histories are at the root of the story so it is the survivors stories um, it's more than that as well i mean it is it's a conventional social history in many respects but um without uh margaret and her brother brian's accounts we wouldn't have had a book so it is the survivor stories and i think the other thing they wanted to emphasize is that this murder massacre is of a femicide this is a term that isn't often uh, wasn't used until after the um, montreal massacre in 1989 but a femicide is a murder um, of women because they are women and that is what this is all about um uh the this is a, at the root of this is the massacre of four blameless women by someone who wanted to to kill them by virtue of their gender. So that, that I think, is, uh, was also um, in the back of um, Dundurn, our publisher's uh, mind. Uh, it's a, a kind of a clumsy tagline. I think Peg and I both would rather have had something that was a little simpler, and we proposed things that were a little simpler. But we do appreciate that uh, publishers know about marketing, and so we let them do it. <laughs> okay, Maggie. Because yes. you're one of the remaining, 
children and parents without going into a huge amount of detail because that's what the book is for. Can you mm -hmm. provide a brief description of what happened? Well, I would say that the incident in itself was a long time in coming. Uh, this person, not related to me, was our family stalker for many, many years. This person, the perpetrator, was my mother's husband, a, I would say estranged husband, uh, who was always living near us or beside us in a shack and uh, after a number of years, uh, then he decided that he no longer had control over our family. We, My mother went on to have a different partner and three children with a different partner. And uh, when her new partner died, we didn't have protection from our stalker. And this is a story that has replayed in modern times 60 years later, I still hear it on the radio. We are still hearing inquests about such events in rural areas. And one evening, this man, who this perpetrator who loved guns, had guns, decided to use them against our family. And that happened in one evening. And can I mention, Peter, that there are very few who were there at the time. And can I mention that you were a young man at this time, you were a young 20, I think 20 year old first uh, teacher, first year boarding next door to us and you came to help. So this is a remarkable and very unusual podcast that we have two of us who were there that evening. And I find it, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that you have a podcast and I'm talking to you 60 years later about this events that we now have words to describe it. We didn't have words then. We didn't have femicide. We didn't have stalker. We didn't understand uh, the pattern that some of these perpetrators have and then commit such a crime. But we are here now. And here I am 60 years later telling you that it was very brave of you to come and help that evening and consequently uh, if people read the book, they will find out that you were wounded badly that evening. And that's the remarkable aspect of it. This is I a kind of... Else, uh, I don't know what else I could say to that. This is a kind of reunion that uh, we've, we've got going here. <laughs> so, Sharon, I want to understand how the two of you got together and why you decided to write this book. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as uh, Margaret says, um, she was in no way related to the perpetrator. And I, I, I would just say in passing that we don't intend to use the perpetrator's name here. Um, we are not keen to give him any more airtime than he's already received. Uh, he is named in the book. It's pretty difficult to write a book about a massacre and not name the, the uh, perpetrator. But we, we uh, in our media uh, presentations, we have decided not to name him. Um, so she was in no way uh, related to him, but he lived very close to her family, and she was therefore, along with her brother, Brian, and the other children and her mother um, and her father, uh, vulnerable to this man. Um, 
uh, he was in fact related to me. He was my father's oldest brother. And uh, I knew him very little. Um, in fact, um, I, I, I knew Peg, uh, Margaret and Brian very little. Um, there wasn't a lot of exchange. We lived a quite a distance away from each other at that, uh, in 1963 when the massacre occurred. My family lived in Calgary and the massacre occurred in Castleton, uh, close to Coburg in Eastern Ontario. So there wasn't a lot of exchange. I, I, I rarely saw this man, but what I did know was that my father adored him. He admired him enormously as younger brothers often do older brothers. After the massacre, uh, my parents um, went uh, to Ontario um, to uh, try to help uh, in, in the situation to clean up. Uh, and um, they, after uh, some discussion, um, they brought Margaret and Brian, the two surviving children, back to Calgary to be absorbed into our family. And at that time, I was 16 years old, a high school student. I was the only one of their three children still at home. My two older brothers had gone off to begin their lives um, elsewhere than in Calgary. Um, and I was uh, near the end of high school. So Margaret and I became um, uh, like sisters uh, um, very early on. Margaret had had uh, an older sister and a younger sister, and she knew what, what that relationship was uh, like. I had never had a sister, had always wanted one, and here she was. And um, so we, from that uh, point forward, um, she and Brian were a part of uh, our family. Um, not too long afterwards, I left uh, home to go to university in Edmonton, and Margaret and Brian stayed on. And in that period, they created a kind of second family with my parents, as uh, often happens after, um, you know, a blended family is created. They were the children in, the, in, the, uh, in their second family. And um, certainly uh, they were teenagers at that point, and there was some push and pull, um, but um, they came to have a very warm relationship with both of my parents. They were... Uh, as they aged, um, uh, very loyal to them. And uh, I, um, I explained in the book how very proud both my parents were of both Margaret and Brian, thinking they were just a miracle that uh, they had encountered these two talented, wonderful young people who became talented, wonderful older people. Thank you. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so the the book is written. The question for both of you is why? So Sharon, let's start with you. All right. Um, Peg, I'll, I'll deal with the first two perhaps, shall I? Uh, yes. We've, we've, sure. uh, we've talked about this before. Well, one of the reasons for writing the book, uh, Peter, um, was to investigate the roots of one femicide with a deep dive into the psychology of the perpetrator. As, as Margaret was just saying, we are living through um, a gut-wrenching inquest in Renfrew County right now with a, a perpetrator very similar to the one in, in um, the one that we write about. In this case, the man uh, killed three of his former girlfriends. And um, 
seems to have done so with a strong sense of entitlement. But we actually don't know very much about this man. We don't know the circumstances in which um, he developed that sense of entitlement. We don't know the, about the relationship with the three women that he murdered. In the case that we are looking at, we ha ended up knowing a great deal about not only um, the circumstances of the murders, but the, um, the history of this particular man um, right back uh, two generations so that we were able to look at the question of what creates a mass murderer? Was this a, a person who was um, abused during his childhood um, and therefore reenacted that on his victims? Or was it someone who had a happy childhood and something else went terribly wrong? I think we're able to um, examine uh, quite quite um, effectively um, the reasons why this person, who had been a United Church minister and a well-known scholar, turned into a mass murderer. Uh, I think it's a question we all deal with as a society, and I think we have some answers. I know we have some answers. So that is one uh, purpose of the book is to figure out what caused this person to act the way he did and what was his psychology what did he actually believe that um, gave him the right to terrorize a family for 16 years as a stalker and then to murder as many people as he could so that that's that is one major um, purpose and um, it's one that that uh, uh, laces right through the book uh, and uh, I, I we we both found it very interesting because of course as a child uh, in that family uh, Margaret was not in a position to look at the psychology of the perpetrator she was a 12 year old child when all this happened and um, so I think it's been a learning experience for both of us as we have progressed. The second purpose of the book was to decenter the perpetrator. Now, the perpetrator carried out a mass murder, carried out what we call a familicide. He tried to wipe out a whole family. It was a femicide. He tried to wipe out all the women in that family. Um, and so it's pretty hard to write a book about a massacre and not mention the, um, the, the person who is the massacre, as I said earlier. But what we didn't want was for this book to be taken over by him. It is not just his story. It's your story, Peter. It is Margaret's story and her mother's story. It is her sister's story the, 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 who were killed. It is the story of his sister uh, whom he murdered, uh, a noted watercolorist um, artist um, of the era. It's the story, in fact, of my family as they um, harbored these children. It's the story of other people as well, and we decided that we were going to tell that story as well. Because um, uh, it's uh, important to remember that um, uh, the victims uh, in, a, in a story like this um, are, are very important, and they're often forgotten almost immediately. The yeah. person who carries on is the perpetrator. And we have attempted to correct that mistake. We speculate in the book about why it is that we forget about the victim so quickly. Um, and uh, we've, we've tried to correct that. But uh, we, are de we were determined to make this book about more than the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Margaret? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I wanted to add to that. I, d I did think about it a long time when uh, a few years ago, Sharon... Uh, Sharon's son actually suggested that we write this book 
together. I thought about it a long time. This wasn't, oh, yes, let's do it. This was, let, let me think about this. And if Brian isn't on board, it's a no-go. So Brian and I decided we were on board because we wanted to correct some information that was out there. And also, these women who were lost were silenced, and they just disappeared. In unmarked graves, if I were to go there, uh, we didn't even know where they were buried. And the silence was from everyone. As you know, Peter, it isn't a topic for dinner conversation to talk about your past if it includes this kind of horrific crime. You just don't sit there and say, oh, guess what happened to me in 1963? There's silence around this. There's silence every day. There's silence for decades around this. A couple of things really motivated me. Years, years later, someone said, well, we know why he did it. Now think about that. We know why he did it uh, because he caught his wife cheating. That wasn't the case. People made assumptions as to why he did it. I was very upset about the fact that people just made assumptions and, and as to why this person committed this crime. I also had the comment, did you hate your mother? Oh my goodness, what does that mean? That she was somehow the cause of this. So with those kinds of attitudes, they have to be corrected. They have to be corrected. So that was my motivation for saying yes to doing this project. I, I would just want to add too that one of the things that's very striking to was striking to me as we researched this <clears throat> was um, to note how the family and indeed the community also um, coped with the perpetrator's craziness and achieved a kind of normalcy. This, I think, is very common in domestic abuse situations or, or situations where there is an abuser of some sort. <clears throat> that, I think, is a story worth telling as well. And we did try to tell that. How did Margaret's father, A.D. Hall, and her mother, Florence Killens, keep this man at bay for 16 years? How was that done? And uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkable achievement when you consider just how violent he was. So that, that's part of the story as well. And then the other thing that I just want to throw in there is, and, and it actually comprises the last third of the book um, as, a, as a, um, a purpose for the book, was to chart how Margaret and her brother pulled themselves out of trauma and learned to live satisfying lives. How do people do that? People who have been so deeply traumatized as these two children were, not just by the massacre, but by the uh, years and months before the massacre when um, the perpetrator um, uh, verbally abused them, forced them into situations that were against their will, et cetera. How do, how do children survive trauma? So that's another purpose of the book. So... Mar Margaret, tell me about your father. I didn't know much about him. A.D. Hall. He died a year before of natural causes of heart failure. He died a year before. While he was still working as a lawyer, he was much older than my mother. But I like to tell people that my father was born in 1893. 
Isn't that something which I'm really quite proud of, actually? He um, was a World War I vet, and he was proud of that. He was in the Battle of Passchendaele. Uh, I'm grateful to uh, Tim Cook, who is Sharon's son, who found his military records, and it, it really made him come back, come alive for me again. Uh, he was a kind, soft-spoken, really wonderful father. And, and we spent a lot of time sitting, well, we lived in his law office for a while to escape uh, the perpetrator. We lived in his law office for three years, the three children, my mother and A.D. Hall. And he let us play with his law books. We played with the, the stamps that were in there. <laughs> I remember that quite clearly. And, uh, yeah, I have very fond memories of this man, very fond memories. And like I say, he was an older man when we were married, and I think he just enjoyed every minute that he spent with us as children, as an older man probably would if he became a father of three little children later in life. So, uh, yeah, he... Uh, he always dressed up nicely. He wore a suit and, and a nice hat when he did his business, and people quite respected him. I've had, I've had interesting comments in researching this book about people who knew or their fathers or mothers knew A.D. Hall, and they've all been positive. That was my father. <laughs> hey, one final question for both of you. What should a reader take from this book? in terms of a learning situation. Sharon? Can I answer? Oh, sorry. Sharon, let's start with you. Okay. Okay. Peg, did you want to say something first? I only wanted to say that someone mentioned to me, if you want the takeaway from the book, read, read, the, la read the epilogue first. <laughs> oh, that's cheating. My God, uh, yeah. a cheat a, a, a cheat now, now you can answer. Sorry about that, Sharon. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Well, um, I think uh, there are a number of key findings um, in the book that, uh, and and Peg, you you feel free to 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 jump in here. Some of these I've mentioned because they were um, they were goals, they were purposes in writing the book in the first place. The first is that abusers don't suddenly begin lashing out as if they crack. Rather, there is a pattern of slowly increasing frustration that results in greater levels of violence. At the same time, abusers hone their craft over time, abusing one person, then another. They divide and rule so that it is difficult to move against them. They terrify people into doing their bidding in the hope that their demands will slake their anger and keep the peace. That, I think, the profile of this abuser is one of the strongest elements in the book. And I, I guess as a, a key learning issue, we are hopeful that if somebody reads this book and sees this man's profile, they may recognize someone like that in their own lives and recognize that this does constitute abuse and they need help. A second finding is um, we document the many junctures at which the perpetrator could have been stopped but was not. This tells us the essential role of refuges for women um, and children who are victims, of police departments taking threats and small acts of violence seriously and acting on them before disaster ensues, 
and of the important role of social services to support families in this kind of distress. <clears throat> None of these supports were available to this family in 1963. They were completely exposed, completely on their own. And that uh, in part explains uh, why the uh, catastrophe occurred that it did. And I wanna say just in passing that we're nowhere near um, supporting strongly enough families who find themselves in this situation. We underfund everything, every part of this process as that inquest in Renfrew County is showing. And if we are actually serious about doing something about this, we've got to pony up more money in our society. Okay, Margaret? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely agree with everything that Sharon said. If, if there's a takeaway from this book, I would say to people, to families who find themselves in any kind of similar situation, don't be silent. Find somebody to talk to. Find somebody to tell. Uh, my goodness, just two or three blocks from me, apparently there was an incident just a few weeks ago where a family in crisis had a situation where the police had to be called. And and I, I think I stood outside and just looked at their house for a little while thinking, what was going on inside that house? What was happening? How could this have been prevented? Um, it came near to disaster, but it was stopped just in time. But it was so close to uh, someone getting seriously hurt that it impacted me more than I thought it would. Um, so. If you uh, just don't be silent about seeing someone who has any of these characteristics that uh, we have listed in the book, uh, it's a pattern um, that that they have, and it, uh, I, I just that would be my my takeaway message. Don't be silent. Okay, it's been uh, a pleasure talking to both of you, and just to uh, reiterate the name of the book is the Castleton Massacre, Survivor Stories of the Killens Femicide. It's ironic, the last name of it. Yeah. Killens, yes. but uh, mm -hmm. that's what it is. Yeah. So they will be on tour a little bit, and they'll be able to hear this podcast. So thank you, ladies, for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Right.